Unlocking Consciousness. Exploring the mind through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. Welcome to the Hacking Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. Hope you're doing well out there, wherever you are. I'm in Vancouver, Canada, where I finished going to a conference the last two days, the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference, which was a gathering of people who are interested in psychedelics and plant medicine in the Vancouver community. It was my first psychedelic conference of any sort that I've been to, and it was really great. There were some fantastic speakers, and and that was definitely a highlight to hear from some really interesting people, everyone from people who worked for MAPS and were academics in the field of psychedelic research to people who were indigenous people who had, you know, generations of wisdom to share about the use of these sacred medicines in their original context. So that was really wonderful. And honestly, the best part was just the opportunity to meet with people face to face, have conversations with people who share similar interests and the opportunity to form relationships, some of which I feel like I'll definitely be um, seeing people again in the future, especially because Vancouver, I think, is such a, a great place. So... With that said, and and I suggest I think anyone who's interested should definitely make a note of it and keep it on your radar screen, especially if you're in North America. And Vancouver is a doable flight for you. So it was early November this year, and I'm not sure. I think it tends to be around the same time every year, but just keep an eye out for it. It's It's hosted at the University of British Columbia. And with that said... Let's segue to introducing today's guest. My guest today is Jerry Brown, PhD. He is an anthropologist, author, and activist. From 1972 to 2014, Jerry served as founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University in Miami, where he taught a course on hallucinogens and culture. He's written this book, The Psychedelic Gospels, which is about the role of psychedelics in early Christianity, and it is a fascinating argument that he makes. He has some compelling evidence to support his argument. I'll let you be the judge on the extent to which you buy into the arguments, but Jerry and I really go into detail so you'll get a good feel for the story he has to tell and the evidence to support it in this conversation. And if you're interested, I'd highly encourage you to go out and buy his book, The Psychedelic Gospels, which you can find on Amazon and we'll include the information in the show links as well. But it's not only an interesting argument, but it's a really great read. They've written it like a a fascinating novel. And so it really was a page turner. And I need to give credit to... Jerry's wife and co-author, Julie Brown, who is an integrative psychologist who's been conducting research on the role of sacred plants in religion. And she co-wrote this book in Jerry with Jerry, and Jerry really gives her credit for making the book so readable. Um, so even though Julie wasn't part of the conversation, Julie, shout out to you and thank you for the work you've done as well. Hope that we have a chance to speak at some point in the future. And... 
Jerry was a really fascinating guy, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. I certainly did, and now I give you my conversation with Dr. Jerry Brown on the psychedelic gospels in Christianity. Jerry, how are you? I'm very well today. Yourself? Doing great. Thank you so much for making the time to speak. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, you know, let me just start off by saying, and I, I truly mean this, I thoroughly enjoyed the book that you and your wife, Julie, have written, The Psychedelic Gospels. I am a former history teacher and really just an ongoing student of history, in addition to someone who's fascinated by psychedelics. So I absolutely love your book and really excited to have you on today. Uh, that's that's this, great to hear. It's very uh, gratifying. And though uh, Julie... Uh, could not be with us today. It's a little early for her. Um, I just want to say that the reason this book is so readable is because of her uh, insightful ear and eye for um, making what I usually do as academic prose into something more of uh, anthropological meditation and a travelogue through our uh, research adventures in Christian art. So uh, thank you for the feedback. It means a lot to us. Yeah, and that's it's a great point, Jerry. I have to say, your book really read, and I was I was pleasantly surprised by it. I mean, I was totally down for a a more traditional his, history book and historical argument, but it really read like you know, almost like a novel or like a like a travelogue. It was very readable, um, and that was a great aspect of it. And actually, that's where I wanted to start off today. So before we kind of dive into your thesis, I wanted to give you a chance to share about how you and Julie stumbled upon this story that ended up turning into pretty much the big research breakthrough, it seems like, of your career, because your personal story on how you came across this is a really neat story in and of itself. So do you want to start out with sharing that with our listeners? Sure, and, and I'd like to go back uh, a little bit uh, to create a context because, as they say, um, I was well prepared for this discovery uh, that I didn't know was coming. But uh, if, we, if we really want to know where it started, it started with uh, my first LSD trip which took place in 1973 at a rainbow family gathering high in the Rocky Mountains of uh, Colorado at Rocky Mountain National Park. And um, I, it was a very disorienting experience and I kind of was plunged into a Carlos Castaneda-like world of uh, malevolent spirits. And uh, not surprising because it was a tumultuous time in my life uh, my first marriage was unraveling, uh, a very powerful social movement I'd been involved with had, had come to an end for me, which had been a, a sort of a, a, a lodestar in my life. And um, unlike, you know, I was saying, where was the instant nirvana that Timothy Leary was uh, promising and others? Nowhere in sight. Uh, but I wasn't, I realized a little later on, I wasn't alone because uh, Albert Hoffman, in his wonderful book that I recommend to everyone interested in psychedelics, LSD, My Problem Child, said, and I quote, I was seized in his first experience in 1943 
uh, with LSD. I was seized by the dreadful fear of going insane. I was taken to another world, another place, another time. Was I dying? Well, I didn't feel I was dying, but uh, it was certainly disorienting. And uh, as an anthropologist, a founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University, FIU, a state school, uh, state college in my state university in Miami, uh, I decided to design and teach a course on psychedelics and culture, uh, which I put into the catalog around 1975. And it's been taught uh, there and is still taught today after I retired in 2014. Um, it was a course that looked into the classical cultures of uh, the Rig Veda and ancient Hinduism, into the Eleusinian mysteries, into the indigenous use of psychedelics, and also into the modern mind explorers. So with that background, I really had to do interdisciplinary research on art history, on ethnobotany, and certainly on ethnomycology and the way different people uh, use mushrooms, and uh, on chemistry, on psychopharmacology, uh, certainly on ethnography and anthropology. And so I had this background. Now let's fast forward to 2006 when Julie and I are on a um, 20th year anniversary trip to Scotland and intrigued by Dan Brown's bestseller, The Da Vinci Code, which mentioned Roslyn Chapel south of Edinburgh as a possible resting place of the Holy Grail. We were drawn to Roslyn Chapel. And in Roslyn Chapel, which is a Catholic church, uh, I discovered a psychoactive mushroom embedded, sculpted into the forehead of the most prominent green man of Roslyn Chapel. Roslyn is an amazing synthesis of pagan and Christian symbolism. And green men are uh, fertility symbols, uh, heads of um, very uh, fecund, fertility images uh, staring out from the walls, showing a variety of emotions. And this one was sort of a very prominent, sardonic. It came down from the ceiling uh, on a 15-foot boss that was suspended down from the ceiling in concrete. And this place is more gouty than Gothic. I mean, the, the, the concrete almost seems to move around you. And I bought a plaster replica of this green man head and about two weeks later was sitting in a restaurant in St. Andrews in Scotland, turned it around on the table and saw this Amanita muscaria mushroom. And it was the bulb, it was the veil, it was the speckled cap of the mushroom. And this really started Julie and my head spinning once we realized what it was. Why is this here? What did Sir William St. Clair, the founder of Roslyn, who built this beach starting in the 1440s until his death in the 1480s, what's he trying to tell us? Was this used in Christian rites? Uh, how far back does it go? Is this even possible to have been an inspiration for divinity and immortality for Jesus and his disciples? And before we got too carried away with wild speculation, um, the words of Carl, the famous astrophysicist Carl Sagan came to mind. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And we realized that saying that Christianity had a psychedelic history 
would certainly be an extraordinary claim. So that in order to validate this, we would have to travel through Europe and the Middle East, visiting churches and cathedrals and abbeys and chapels, seeing if we could find additional evidence of psychedelics in Christian art. We prefer to call them entheogens, uh, plants and chemicals that generate the divine within. And indeed, we finally were able in 2012 to undertake a six-month research journey, and that gave rise to the many discoveries of psychedelics that we made in uh, stained glass windows, in frescoes, in illuminated uh, prayer books and Bibles, in sculpture, in mosaics that gave us the confidence to generate the theory of the psychedelic gospels as an alternative gospel, an alternative story to the one presented in the canonic gospels, and to present the evidence that is very uh, clearly documented in color and black and white photos throughout our books. Uh, throughout our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens and Christianity, uh, showing these psychedelics, which are primarily uh, Amanita muscaria mushrooms and also a variety of psilocybin mushrooms. So one thing to kind of maybe flesh out a little bit for our listeners who might not be familiar with these mushrooms, and maybe I can imagine some of them wondering, well, you see mushrooms, you know, in a painting or a sculpture. How do you know that they're psychedelic? And um, the Amanata muscaria really is, and I'll let you describe it, it is so distinctive that you need not really be any kind of expert at all to identify it. But um, if you could maybe explain that a bit sure. for our listeners, and I'd be very curious also to hear you talk a little bit more about how can you really tell what some of these other um, mushrooms that you you determined were psilocybin mushrooms and you know that they're psilocybin as opposed to non-psychoactive mushrooms. So with respect to the Amanita muscaria mushroom, which is uh, probably one of the most iconic mushrooms in the psychedelic uh, kingdom. Uh, it's the red uh, and red capped mushroom with the white dots, the kind of popcorn looking uh, specks that are on top of the mushroom in its mature form. Uh, it has a veil, a skirt that goes around the stem and it has a, a bulb on the bottom. And uh, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen this mushroom uh, if they read anything on psychedelics uh, if they look at uh, psychedelic mushrooms images online, or uh, if they've um, if they've uh, seen them in Scandinavian folk tales, you see them sometimes around Santa Claus at Christmas time, which we can get into later. We have a whole cha chapter on Santa, the reindeer shaman, and uh, you. A lot of my many of my students say, "Oh, we've seen that mushroom in the Mario Brothers video game." So. So basically, it's a very distinctive mushroom, and we saw all the bulb, the veil, and the dots on the mushroom sculpted into the forehead upside down of the Green Man of Roslyn Chapel. When we were writing this book in 2015, we had the good fortune to have dinner with one of the world's most eminent mycologists, Paul Stamets in the state of Washington. Uh, Paul's website is Fungi Perfecti, and his most recent book is 
mycelium running, how mushrooms can help save the world. And we showed him this picture and we said, Paul, you know, would you agree with our identification that this is an Amanita muscaria mushroom? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely sure. And I said, are you positive? And it was, I kind of had to catch myself because it's like asking the Pope if he's Catholic. And he laughed and he said, this is a taxonomically correct Amanita muscaria. And I said, can I quote you? And yes, we quote him in the book. And he said, let me show you something else. And he pulled out his computer and he had been to Roslyn Chapel and he showed us not only this image, but a multiple psychoactive mushroom images that he had found throughout Roslyn Chapel. Uh, in other images in our book, for example, the image that's on the cover of the book, uh, which shows God creating plants in a, an illuminated prayer book, there is a red and white Amanita mushroom uh, in that scene from Genesis. And also in a, in a very famous uh, painting of the Eden scene, the temptation scene, uh, in the Garden of Eden, in a tiny chapel of Plain Keralt in France, we see Adam and Eve standing one on each side of a giant Amanita mushroom that's a little taller than them with the white speckles uh, very meticulously and precisely uh, painted into the cap of that mushroom. And in uh, Romanesque art, this is about from the 11th century, um, size matters. And the fact that these Benedictine monks who either drew or commissioned the artists to paint this scene uh, wanted us to know or wanted the viewers to know that this Amanita mushroom was there and it was prominent in the Eden scene. So that's how we know about the Amanita mushrooms. They're very distinctive. They're hard to mistake. The other mushrooms that we saw were, were psilocybin, and in some cases they were painted so precisely. For example, in the transfiguration scene that's in a bronze Christ column, a 12-foot high Christ column in St. Michael's Church in Germany, um, they're so precisely drawn that the ethnobotanists are able to identify which of the 40 psychoactive varieties of psilocybin that particular mushroom is. Uh, the same goes for the tiny parish church of St. Martin de Vic in central France, where we see an amazing scene of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. He's riding the ass. His disciples are walking behind him with their hands raised in a gesture of awe or respect. And the joyful youth, who are welcoming Jesus to Jerusalem, are, are standing underneath five tan, smooth psilocybin mushroom caps. And the series of images we saw in that church was were so concise, so unmistakable that it was the moment where we decided uh, to, we were really inspired, we had that aha moment that led to us generating the theory of the psychedelic gospels as an alternative um, history of Christianity, which on reflection was not so surprising because back in the sixth century, Pope Gregory said, let art be the Bible of the illiterate because up through the middle ages, most of the populace was illiterate and art was going to be the instruction. So if you were going to talk about psychedelics in the liturgy or in a Christology in the history or story of Christ, 
uh, art is where you would certainly put them. And the other main point we make about this is that secrecy is not suppression. A lot of people believe, uh, scholars think that the, the Catholic Church suppressed all of this. We don't think so. We think it was very visible, but it was uh, secret, a secret practice uh, for the initiates, for those who were in the know. And as, is, as was the practice in the Greek Eleusinian mystery, right? and as is the practice in shamanism today, where most of these things were, were done uh, in secret and were guarded as the holy of holy. Now that is before something like ayahuasca explodes with sort of ecotourism out of the Amazon in modern times. But um, certainly up through the Middle Ages, these practices were held in secret. Okay. So the, the, the practices were held in secret, but the actual depiction of them in art was not a secret? Is that well, correct? It, it, it was secret unless you knew what you were looking for. Because we can ask ourselves, as we did, Roslyn Chapel, uh, it's a very famous chapel. I mean, it was, uh, um, you know, praised in poetry throughout the ages. It was uh, an enigmatic cathedral of codes associated with the Templars, associated with the Holy Grail. And it has been one of the most observed chapels by art historians, by people who have sort of holy blood, holy grail, alternative histories of Christianity, by theologians, by tour guides, uh, for centuries, for 500 years. So why did no one identify this mushroom up to this point? Because they did not have a training in ethnobotany. And as one very famous art historian who was involved in writing commentaries on the great Canterbury Psalter, which is replete with psychoactive mushroom images, said to me when I pointed this out to him, he said, Jerry, I wouldn't know a mushroom if I saw one. So in other words, it's sort of like, you know, when you've seen those images in books, like there's a drawing and you're looking at a drawing of a, of a woman with a beautiful feathered hat on it. But if you look or you flip your angle, there's a drawing of an old hag. And until you see the hag there, you don't see it. But once you see it, you can never go back again. And people uh, without a training in ethnobotany were not able to recognize or see these. A famous art historian who wrote extensively on the um, Church of St. Martin de Vic in central France, where we saw this image of Christ entering Jerusalem with the psychoactive mushrooms at his entry, with the psilocybin mushrooms being cut down at the Tower of Jerusalem, and with the mushrooms caps on the table of the Last Supper, which are color illustrations that Julie photographed and that we put into our book. Um, you know, these have been here for a long, long time, for a century, for, for a millennium, for a thousand years, and no one really noticed them or saw them and brought them out into the public uh, discussion because, one, they were not prepared to see them. This was the last place that they would expect to look for psychoactive mushrooms. And even if they were looking straight at them, as this art historian did, she described them as branches in trees. So it's really the, the um, you know, the eye cannot see what the mind is not prepared to comprehend. And I was, you know, fortunate enough 
having had this psychedelic experience, and Julie as well, dating back into the 60s and 70s, to be prepared to recognize this when I saw it. But these were practices that were carried on by the initiates of the church and um, not for everyone. And as we know, Jesus spoke of, uh, you know, I have one message for my disciples and one message uh, for the for the masses. Interesting. Very interesting. So, okay, so there's a huge amount of evidence really beyond dispute to show that without a doubt there was there were psychedelic mushrooms, many different kinds in Christian art, and therefore we can only assume in Christianity as well. Um, to sort of build on that, what, what do we know about how these substances were used and how, to what extent can we reliably know them and draw conclusions versus based on what we're seeing in the art versus other supporting texts that you found? Well, we know uh, from some of the early church fathers, from uh, Irenaeus and others, that um, psychoactive substances were used in early Christianity. We also know this from the Romans, from some of the writing of the Roman uh, prosecutors of Christianity. And we also know uh, by Valentinus and Marcus uh, among the Gnostic Christians who were later persecuted by Orthodox Christianity, uh, that there is a very clear evidence that they used psychoactive substances in their rituals. Uh, this is not surprising because Christianity emerged in a circum-Mediterranean area that was rife with mystery cults, from the Therapeutae of Egypt to the Essenes to the Eleusinian mysteries, which we know uh, in their potion used an LSD-like substance that I can describe in depth later. Um, that had a deep knowledge of pharmacology that spread through Neoplatonism and these different mystery cults. So it is not out of the question. We can easily are, are well established that uh, Christianity emerged in this area um, where people had knowledge of these substances. Number two, the other point that I think uh, needs to be made here is that it's well documented in the Christian art, in very uh, prominent kinds of settings. And in some cases, we see it in the stained glass windows of Chartres Cathedral. 10% of the stained glass windows have psychoactive uh, mushrooms in them. And in other cases, we actually know who created that art. So for example, in the Christ column of that was placed uh, the 12-foot-high bronze Christ column that was placed in the church of St. Michael's in Hildesheim, Germany. Uh, this was done in uh, uh, the early 1000s, about 1015 or 1020, by Bishop Bernward. Bishop Bernward was not a marginal figure by any means. He was the tutor for many years to Otto III, the Holy Roman Emperor. He later was sainted by the Catholic Church, and he devoted his life to being a church builder. He was a brilliant man. He was a mathematician. He was a church builder. He was a metallurgist. And the Christ column tells the story of Christ 
from his baptism by John all the way into entry of Jerusalem. And in five of the 23 or so major scenes depicted in the Christ column, there are very distinct psychoactive mushrooms. And in one uh, particularly, which is the transfiguration of Christ, uh, this is a, a fascinating scene because this is one of the two scenes in the Bible where a miracle happens to Jesus as opposed to Jesus doing the miracle. And here on top of the mountain, two of the ancient uh, Old Testament prophets appear. Uh, Jesus' disciples are standing off to his right underneath three very prominent psilocybin mushrooms with serrated tops and a little nipple on the top that allowed ethnobotanists to identify the species of psilocybin. And here is where God intersects with humanity through Jesus saying, this is my son, hear him well. It's a, it's a dramatic scene, and here are psychoactive mushrooms very prominently displayed. Let me give you another uh, interesting example, and I could go on and on, but I just want to give you a couple of examples here. Um, in the Great Canterbury Psalter, which is an illuminated prayer book uh, that was started in the scriptorium of Canterbury Cathedral, Canterbury uh, in, in England, and a scriptorium is a place where Bibles are, are, are made and are copied and are made by the monks. And in one scene here, um, it's a scene where Jesus has been baptized. He's on his healing mission. And it's a scene, it's a drawing, a painting with gold uh, you know, leaf in it of Jesus healing the leper. And Jesus's hand, his, his right hand is on the leper's head. And the scroll from the leper's left hand translate um, as master, if you want, you may cleanse me. And this is a scroll that unfolds from the leper's left hand, and it's in Latin, and we had the Latin translated. It says, Master, if you want, you may cleanse me. But fascinating, the scroll doesn't unfold up to Jesus. It unfolds down to this psilocybin mushroom at the bottom of the painting. And Jesus is holding a scroll in his left hand that extends to the back of the leper that says, I want to. In other words, I want to heal you. Be cleansed. Here, the artist is making a direct link between Jesus's healing ministry and the curing power of sacred mushrooms. And we have to remember that uh, a majority or a very significant part of shamanic healing, both in ancient times and in contemporary cultures that are shamanistic, uh, had to do with healing, had to do with using the uh, power and spirit of the supernatural world that was revealed by the mushrooms. Um, in order to heal people and to find the source of their illness um, and either to, you know, uh, symbolically extract that illness or bring in the spirits who could do that or drive away the evil spirits uh, who had poisoned them. There's another aspect of this that I just want to touch on, unless you have any, uh, any other questions right now. Go ahead. Okay. Um, if we fast forward, to um, the 1960s encounter with psychedelics. Uh, there is a, a famous experiment that went on in 1962 called the Miracle of Marsh Chapel. It's one of the great landmarks in the study of uh, psychedelics and culture. And basically 
What happened in this study was that Walter Pankey, who was a graduate student in divinity at Harvard University and a student of Timothy Leary before he got thrown out of Harvard, um, took was trying to answer this question of, you know, because there was a lot of anecdotal evidence that psychedelics uh, give people or can give people a mystical experience or an experience of the divine. And so he decided to test this experimentally. And he took 20 uh, Protestant divinity students and he put them in a small chapel underneath the main chapel in Marsh Chapel on Good Friday. So the Marsh, the Good Friday ceremony music was piped into this chapel. Ten of those students were given uh, a good dose of psilocybin and ten of them were given a placebo, niacin, B12, which gave them a feeling of being flushed. Neither the students, the divinity students, nor the researchers knew who was getting the psilocybin and who was getting the placebo. Nine out of the 10 divinity students who received the psilocybin had a full-blown mystical experience. And as described by themselves, as verified by other impartial observers, and also as verified in a mysticism scale that was administered to them shortly after uh, the experiment. Uh, 25 years later, Rick Doblin, the wonderful founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, MAPS.org, which is as the fourth, which is at the forefront of today's psychedelic renaissance in medical applications of psychedelics, did a follow-up study. He found seven of those nine students, and they still acknowledge that this was the most or one of the most significant experiences uh, of their lives. So here, and we have Walter H. Clark, who is a very prominent American uh, psychologist who said, quote, there are no other experiments known to me in the history of the scientific study of religion better designed or clearer in their conclusion than this one. So here we have an illuminating synthesis between mysticism, religion, and science. And I think we can extrapolate backwards from this to say, yeah, if you, we now have experimental evidence that psychedelics, including psilocybin, one of the psychedelic mushrooms we find in medieval and early Christian art, can give someone a mystical experience, then certainly we can extrapolate that the reason those psychedelics are there in Christian art are not simply decorative, but because they were able to give the initiates a direct experience of the divine. Houston Smith, a famous religious scholar who died not so long ago, was one of those divinity students. And he said, this was the most powerful cosmic homecoming that I've ever experienced. In other words, he existentially experienced the God that he had been reading about and studying uh, in his divinity training and in his religious upbringing. So that a lot of themes come together. Now, certainly we have no smoking gun, no direct evidence. We only have indirect evidence when it comes to Jesus and his disciples, because there is no Christian art before 200 AD for a variety of reasons. Poverty, extreme persecution by the Romans, the lack of buildings uh, and institutions where to make this art. So for there, we had to go back into scripture both the um, Gnostic Gospels and the Canonic Gospels. Uh, and I can talk about that later as you wish. But uh, we believe 
Um, there is a variety of evidence, historical, experimental, iconic, indicating that Christianity, one, has a psychedelic history. Number two, that these substances were there for both healing and for religious uh, purposes. And in early Christianity, healing and religion were sort of inter intertwined. Yeah, I'd actually love to really get into that now. And, and I'll pause briefly and just kind of note this because I was I was sort of noticing this pro progression as I was reading the book and sort of evaluating the arguments and the evidence for each of them. It seems like what you've covered up until now is really points that you've proven beyond refutation. And it should be noted as well, as you talked about that, you know, there was a fair amount of research done before you all had written this book as well, noting the presence of psychedelics in Christianity, in, uh, in Christian art, I should say. Um, so it, it seems like what is beyond refute is that there was clearly a lot of psychedelics, multiple different kinds of psychedelic mushrooms in Christian art. Um, you know from the evidence, as you mentioned, that some of these key Christian figures also were um, clearly, what was it, that they were knowledgeable? You, do you have written evidence that they were actually using it or you just knew who was in charge of the churches and therefore they clearly must have known about the construction of these images? Well, as I say, um, in some cases, we know, obviously, that it's there. In other cases, we know what, uh, you know, religious um, order, uh, in one case, uh, the Benedictines uh, were in charge and constructed that church and ordered the paintings to be done. In right. the case of Bishop Renoir, we know the august personage uh who is a high figure in Christianity, who actually made uh, these images. We also know from some of the early writings of the church fathers and also of the Gnostic um, gospel leaders uh, that these substances are mentioned. So we have all of that information. When it comes to the time of Jesus and the disciples, there, all we can do is look back at the canonic Gospels and also at the Gnostic Gospels and look at passages through the eyes of the psychedelic Gospels and say, what do these actually mean? Uh, for example, in the New Testament Gospel of John uh, 6, 51 through 56, Jesus says, um, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Now, what, what does this mean? I mean, is, is Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood? This would be cannibalism, which would be uh, blasphemy and repugnant to both Romans and Jews alike. And obviously all of the early, early Christians were all Jews. So here we believe that these passages, the, the bread and the wine are, you know, are code words for flesh and blood, not of the physical body, but of the sacred substances that were, were you know, consumed as food and drink, and also at times applied as, as ointments during initiation. Certainly cannabis could have been infused in these ointments as well. 
if we go over, uh, so, so things that seem enigmatic or just don't make sense, or people say, well, we should only look at these metaphorically, um, make sense when you look at them through the eyes of the um, psychedelic, the theory of the psychedelic gospels. There is an amazing passage which we quote in the chapter called Kingdom of Heaven in our book from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. And it is so um, clear that it's worth quoting at length. Um, Jesus says to his disciples, compare me to someone, and I quote to, uh, from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, compare me to someone and tell me whom I am like. Thomas said to him, Master, my mouth is wholly incapable of saying whom you are like. Jesus said, I am not your master. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring, which I have measured out. He who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I shall become like he, and the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. Well, obviously, we're talking about a drink. We're talking about an intoxicating drink. And intoxication meant, you know, intoxication of the spirit in, in, in ancient times. And we're talking about a bubbling spring, which I have measured out. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know the dose. I measured it out for you. And dose, as we know, is very important. There's set, setting, and dose that are all uh, key factors, determining factors in, in any psychedelic experience. And now we get into this fascinating transpersonal experience. He who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I shall become like he, and the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. And this goes very much with the Gnostic teachings that God and man are, are one, and that the kingdom of heaven is within, and that Jesus didn't come to save humanity from sin. He came to teach enlightenment. And we see other passages in the New Testament that say, you know, Jesus says, and I'm paraphrasing, oh, look not low, look not here, or look not there for the kingdom of heaven is within. So one of the things we know that entheogens do is to open up the doors of perception, to resacralize the doors of perception so we can find this um, altered dimension, this other dimension of uh, reality that is closed uh, to us in regular perception. And interestingly enough, going back to experimental evidence, um, the research that's going on at the College of London um, by a number of, of scholars, Robin uh, and others, uh, are doing brain imagery. And we're actually able to now see this is your brain, this is your brain on LSD, literally, or this is your brain's default mode network in normal consciousness. And here are the multiple pathways that open up under psilocybin. So I know I've jumped around a little, but the basic conclusion here is we do not have a smoking gun. Um, that, that would be very hard to obtain direct visual or textual evidence that we could attribute to Jesus or his disciples um, that said, you know, we, we were doing psychoactive mushrooms or we were doing mushrooms. But we have intriguing passages from both the um, New Testament and from the Gnostic Gospels, which were Christian Gospels that were suppressed by Orthodox Christianity, um, you know, around 200. And these Gospels were hidden in the sands of Egypt 
near Nag Hammadi and were unearthed and then translated after 1945. Jerry, can I ask what's, um, you know, and of course I've got to ask you this because, you know, my, uh, my Christian studies really haven't been very strong since I had my last Sunday school class at probably 14. But, um, you know, what would a, what would be the traditional interpretation for what you've offered in terms of Christ talking about taking the flesh and the blood? Because I agree. I mean, it wouldn't make sense. Obviously, it'd be cannibalism. So what traditionally would the church or a priest or a pastor say? What are some of the common interpretations of that kind of imagery? Well, I mean, these would be, you know, metaphors for inviting the spirit of Christ uh, into you, into your life and drinking and taking Christ in there. They're, they're metaphors uh, for, you know, accepting Jesus uh, as your savior. And so these are metaphors that people can easily understand what initiation and anointing into um, the life of Christ and the accepting of, of, a, of, a, of a Christian life would be about. So they're more uh, metaphorical or drinking in, um, you know, the spirit of Christ. And that's where we get, the, you know, the whole process of, of, uh, of communion uh, from. So that's how that would be interpreted. Uh, it is, all, And I'd like to make a, a point here that um, we did not write this book to challenge anyone's faith in Christianity. Um, we wrote it to reveal what we believe is a mystery that exists in Christianity and in many religions, as other scholars have pointed out. And um, as you indicated, and I want to underline this, we're not the first people. Uh, obviously, uh, we have John, Ale John uh, Marco Allegro and many others, not many others, but a, a, a good handful of scholars um, who have had an entheogenic theory of religion or an entheogenic theory of Christianity. What we've done is elaborated, documented this, and brought it out into the public discussion. And when we hear, uh, and, and why we hope that this will open up a dialogue with Christians, and I've heard had a number of people, including Southern Baptists, who said, you know, this really makes sense for me. I was always felt there was something missing. Uh, in our book, we quote Brother David Stendel Rost, who is a Benedictine monk, um, a, Bened a priest from the Order of St. Benedict, who says something to the effect that um, if I can experience God in a sunset on a mountaintop, why not through a mushroom prayerfully ingested? Aren't these all God's creations? So we hope this will open up a dialogue and uh, reintroduce people to what we believe was a direct experience of the divine uh, that could be uh, fascinating uh, for Christians and for a lot of people who say they're atheists. I think it's very fascinating that now we have experimental proof that people, no matter what their religious background, can have their own direct experience of the divine, as Julie and I did. We, we had our first, in our own ways, authentic experience of God or, or of this incredible intelligent presence that permeates the entire universe uh, with, with psychedelic substances back 
in the 60s and the 70s. And I think it also offers an incredible portal, portal worth exploring for um, the many, many people who in the Pew Research surveys on religion say, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And that's now 20% of the American population. And when you look at it among young people, I think they classify that as like 19 to 29, that goes up to 33%. So uh, part of our mission, Julie and mine, is one, to, to educate about this and also uh, to, to ask that, that, you know, one, we revisit the history of entheogens in humanity, which is a long history documented way back into the archaeological record, um, that we bring it into modern education. Uh, and we also agree um, with Thomas Roberts in his book, uh, The Psychedelic Future of the Mind, that once these substances are legalized, and I'll talk about that in a minute, that to be an educated person, to truly, in the Socratic sense, to know thyself, uh, young adults should have the opportunity to explore, responsibly explore psychedelics in safe settings and with the availability of guides uh, if, they, if they prefer to do it that way. I think one really important thing that you're sort of alluding to, you know, and, and about religion. And this is part of the work I'm trying to do on this show. And I would say that, you know, entheogens have been an important part of my path as they've been for many other people, including sort of planting the seeds for opening up to uh, spirituality later in life, even though I wasn't necessarily mature enough to um, take advantage of that when I first started experimenting with psychedelics. But um, I think it's about a larger reinterpretation, or I should say emphasis of these traditions that emphasizes the esoteric versus the exoteric. And I didn't really fully appreciate that until... I studied some esoteric schools of Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, but that insofar as I think a lot of people have issues with organized religion, particularly those of us who grew up, you know, in the West, it really is because those religions tend to emphasize the exoteric over the esoteric. And so I think it's a nice sort of entry point for re-engaging with it as metaphors. I'm thinking about Joseph Campbell a lot as we're talking about this. Um, so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that as well, not merely the entheogenic, but the esoteric largely. Yeah, well, um, I, definitely. And uh, it's interesting to me to see the, that through psychedelics and through the, the psychedelic renaissance and the laboratory brain imaging um, clinical studies that are going on, that the esoteric comes back in to the scientific discussion. Let me give you two examples of this. One is by Roland Griffiths, who is really the, the grandfather of the contemporary psychedelic renaissance, who got the veil, you know, got the taboo lifted uh, back in 1999, when he got permission to use psychedelics uh, on human subjects at Johns Hopkins, which for the first time since they were banned 
1970 under Nixon's Controlled Substances Act, which put all of these things on Schedule One. And one of the areas that uh, Griffins and his colleagues at NYU have studied is the use of psilocybin uh, to uh, alleviate depression and anxiety among terminal cancer patients. And this has been amazingly successful with 80 to 85% of the uh, people uh, responding very well with after one or two sessions. Now remember, this is psychedelic assisted psychotherapy that's done in a clinical uh, setting with pre and post uh, support. And I just wanna quote you uh, one of Griffin's observations from this research. He says, there is something about the core of this experience that opens people up to the great mystery of what it is that we don't know. It's not that everybody comes out of it and says, oh, now I believe in life after death. That needn't be the case at all. But the psilocybin experience enables a sense of deeper meaning and an understanding that in the largest frame, everything is fine and there's nothing to be fearful of. And this is like my favorite part coming up. I come back to the quote, there is a buoyancy that comes out of that, which is quite remarkable to see people who are so beaten down by this illness and they start actually providing reassurance to the people who love them most, telling them it's all okay and there's no need to worry. When a dying person can provide that type of clarity for their caretakers, even we researchers are left with a sense of wonder. So in other words, these dying people who've been filled with fear and anxiety and depression come out of this with an understanding of their role and even of the transitoriness of their life in the greater cosmos with a feeling of inner peace and understanding to the extent that they can give comfort and solace to their family and their caretakers and one or two sessions, that's quite remarkable. And to put it in a much broader esoteric sense, I, I would turn to Stanislav Grof, uh, who along with Jim Fadiman is, is are, you know, at, in my book, you know, the, the most amazing psychedelic researchers uh, living today. Grof is the founder of LSD Psychotherapy, who's written numerous books, uh, The Holotropic Mind, The Human Encounter with Death, When the Impossible Happens. And he says the following. I now firmly believe that consciousness is more than an accidental byproduct of the neurophysiological and biochemical processes taking place in the human brain. I see consciousness and the human psyche as expressions and reflections of a cosmic intelligence that permeates the entire universe and all of existence. And I agree with that. And I think this is where uh, psychedelics have become the portal uh, to the esoteric, to reaffirming in the modern world the ancient knowledge, whether it be through alchemy, esotericism, hermeticism, and whatever forms people use to name their ex exploration of what was always considered to be uh, the metaphysical world, the hidden world.
Yeah, I heard a, a podcast interview with Dennis McKenna recently, and he said one thing about psychedelics that they will continually remind you is that you don't know shit. You know, you think you know shit, but you don't. <laughs> and I find that is just that blunt piece of wisdom is so spot on. I, um, I participated for the first time in a ayahuasca ceremony in Peru in May, and we did you know, eight ceremonies over two weeks. It was a lot. And even having done a lot of psychedelics before, this was really sort of a next level experience. And um, a lot of what you just said there in terms of reframing my thoughts about consciousness uh, were definitely part of that experience. I mean, it, it just, it fundamentally challenged some pretty firmly held beliefs I had about myself and the way the world works. And so, yeah, I definitely think there's something unique about it. And I think one thing is it, it opens up the, the realm for intuition as well. That's how I felt. And, you know, I can say I only have a strong sense. It doesn't mean now I know what the divine is. You have to be careful how we interpret these experiences, but it really opened me up to a kind of wisdom that is beyond the the logical mind as much as we love, especially intellectual people like I'm sure the two of us are and many of our listeners that we have to acknowledge. And sometimes it can be frustrating for scientists or other intellectuals that there are limits, you know, to, to the human mind. But but I think psychedelics can be a, a really powerful reminder of that in a gentle way and sort of uh, an entry point to this idea that there's a kind of wisdom that exists beyond thought. No, no doubt about it. And, and uh, in the sense that I think psychedelics are to the mind, what the telescope was to astronomy and what the microscope was to biology. And we are standing uh, now that the veil is being lifted once again through the psychedelic renaissance on the shore of this vast ocean uh, and able to use this marvelous tool that was given to us through the plant world and that we have also synthesized as, as Albert Hoffman did and other uh, pharmacologists uh, into chemical form uh, to really explore, to allow ourselves to become uh, psychonauts of the mind and to see how we want to explore that and then how we can possibly integrate it uh, into our lives. Um, and after my first uh, initial experience, I had other experiences that were uh, much more uh, grounding and much more uh, gave me purpose and a sense of direction. And I trust those psychedelic Voices, and I believe, and here, um, you know, I'm I'm probably uh, going out on a on a limb here, but I believe that the mushrooms are sentient beings uh, that we continually look for, um, you know, the the aliens, and is there intelligent life out there? And I believe that some of these mushrooms, especially the psychoactive ones, are 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 sentient, and they came to Earth 1.4 billion years ago, and they have things to teach us, and this comes very clear. In the work of Maria Sabina, the famous Mazatec shamanist, who we describe in uh, the chapter on our book, 
on um, Maria Sabina and the Little Saints, who when she does her incantations, when she uses um, psilocybin, the landside variety in Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, for curing ceremonies, she gives them to uh, the people who are ill, she takes them herself. And at the end of every line of her chants, she says what in the Mazatec language uh, translated into English as mushroom says, because it's not her, it's the mushroom uh, speaking through her with uh, a sort of a, a, an insightful authority that's not available uh, to the conscious mind. Uh, all of this is available and, and for, for people who uh, want to follow our work a little more closely, uh, if I may, I'd like to give some, some website. That'd references. be perfect, Jerry, because we need to wrap up and, and I wanted to give you a chance to, to leave all that info. So why don't you do that now along with your social media info and any other contact info? Sure. Uh, so obviously you can find our book on Amazon, the Psychedelic Gospels, or at Barnes & Noble or other booksellers. Our website is psychedelicgospels.com, psychedelicgospels.com. Our Facebook page is Psychedelic Gospels. Uh, you can follow us on Pinterest, and Theogens Are Us, A-R-E, and Theogens Are Us. And also on Instagram, you can follow our journey, which Julie has photographically documented, under Psychedelic uh, gospels and at um, our website psychedelicgospels.com you can also sign up for our, our you know there you can look at our blogs and also sign up for our mailing list and um, we highly appreciate the opportunity you know to share this information with you and, and your listeners well I thank you so much Jerry and thank you Julie for your time not only today you know with our listeners but just all your hard work over the years doing this research and writing this book I mean I find it such an amazing thesis with such strong evidence to back it up that, I mean, I, I feel like, I'm like, why isn't everyone reading this? I'm sure that's because I'm so interested in this, but truly, I mean, it, it seems like the kind of thing that should be a, a paradigm changer in terms of art history and history and religious studies. So I hope your book gets all the attention that it deserves. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hackingconsciousness.